0: Greetings and peace to you people of God at the various Grace Chapel campuses. I am delighted to bring the word of God to you from Isaiah 40 as we look at this whole matter of being bent, broken, but blessed. The Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah written in the seventh century BC has the young preacher beginning his career with the awesome commission in chapter 6, the vision that Isaiah sees in the year that King Isaiah died goes thus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, shouts the heavenly messengers, the seraphs as they're called. The whole of chapters 1 through 39 tell of God's judgment on the sin-sick people of God and the mighty nations around them. Justice and mercy had been perverted, and oppression of the needy and commonplace was so often going on. Those who were thought to be worth nothing, just the common people, were the ones so often for whom justice was not given, not even thought of. Isaiah 40 is the good news. God says that after exile, the nation will return and blessing and dignity, restoration will come about. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the noted 19th century British poet, speaks of the splendor of the creation in his poem, God's Grandeur. He says the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And he says that same creation is the bent world bent by our creative disobedience our dishonoring of god the creation and one another whether it's seventh century israel or 21st century united states we are part of communities of spiritually bent broken humans each one of us experiences what it is to be fallen creatures so it is to be sinners in a sinful world, planning, plotting, oppressing, obsessing over ourselves and our wants to the detriment of our neighbors, our family, our workplace, even our very souls. On this weekend, we remember the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., a man who sounded a trumpet sound, a drum major's call, as he called it, against the begetting and besetting sins of the American nation, those of racism and disenfranchisement of the poor. Let me first define our terms. Prejudice. What is it to be prejudiced? Prejudice is a sin of all people, rich, poor, majority race, minority race. It's a part of the bent, broken nature that all of humanity possesses. Prejudices are those stereotypes we have about people based on uh, their race, their ethnicity, where they came from, how they speak, what they do. It may be conveyed by jokes, stories, attitudes toward those whom we want to date, whom we associate with, those whom, with whom we live near or don't want to live near. I remember a preacher that I once heard tell a story about a woman who felt threatened because a big black man was behind her. How many times have you heard a story told about someone being threatened by a big white man who's near you? Well, I'm showing you the silliness of it. Because if you're a part of the majority population, you don't think to identify somebody by race but often doing that to someone who is a minority is easy to do. Now, I wonder, bottom line, was he more threatening because he's black? It really seems so, but perhaps that wasn't her intent. But it's some of the ways in which we speak in our prejudice without thinking of how it sounds. You know, in the African-American community, there is a code that will often be told that I'm going to let you in. I'm going to tell you a little secret here. When so often in the majority community, uh, we speak of, uh, hear someone spoken of as articulate. Well, black people know that means it must be a a black person that uh, white folks think can speak well and use the language well. And so often when we hear somebody referred to, and if a white person says, well, that person is an articulate person, we think, it's a black person, must be. Uh, It just is a way of saying something to describe, but maybe it sounds to us that, well, are all the other black folks, you know, inarticulate? What is it about that? I can remember one time in interviewing someone at a college, and uh, I heard people say, you'll enjoy this person, and uh, she's going to be a good addition. She's a very articulate person. I went home and told my wife, Kathy, that without saying anything about it, and she said, she must be black. And she said, same thing has happened to me. Well, it's something that we hear, and it raises those concerns about, what do you really mean? Well, living often in predominantly white communities, pastoring all-white or predominantly white churches, I've heard folks say, even innocently, why do black people do this? Or why do you people dance better than white people do? <laughs> well... Typically, having heard that often enough, uh, I respond, I- I'm not sure, and I haven't asked the other 12 and 1 half percent of the American population what they all think about that. Uh, I don't know what the view is on that issue. Well, as I said, prejudice, we could all talk about that, whatever background we have. Uh, black folks say things that are prejudiced. Asian folks say things that are prejudiced. White folks do. It's not a color matter. It's who we are and how we look at things and the unfair ways we may portray others. But racism, racism according to sociology, sociologists, is the ability to enforce our prejudices. Racism is about power. Racism is about the power to enforce our brokenness and the ill use of that power. Such was the racism of the 1787 United States Constitutional Convention, that slaves were not thought to be full humans, but given the status of three fifths of a human being. This immoral but legal inequity allowed for the perpetuation of slavery, the Jim Crow laws of the South, causing black folks to live in fear and in near slavery. Such was the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Such were the lynchings of African Americans in the South for no crime, but merely out of showing disrespect to the majority population. Such was the pitiful substandard education endured in the North and the South based on race. Such was the lack of public accommodation to men and women of color at the lunch counter, at the voting booth, at theaters, any place of where white majority chose to say the black majority could go or not go in the North and in the South as well. All of this was undergirded by state and federal authority. We are a victim of bent. Broken, busted, bleeding relationships, friends. And the church as a whole so often did not assume its prophetic place calling the church to repentance, calling the valley of constitutional racism for what it was. And it simply was then and now. It's called sin in the scriptures. In fact, I've heard the works of some well-known southern theologians who cited biblical support in their view for the chattel slavery in pre-Civil War America. (laughs) Friends, this is not just bygone history, unfortunately. It's not just past buried accounts. We still bear the scars, the wounds in the present. How? I'll give you a personal example. My father was a policeman and taught me respect for the law and those who are appointed by God as peacemakers. But he also taught me to be aware of the continuing prejudice and racism of white officers who might unjustly profile me as a potential felon and do harm to me. Watch out, son, he told me. If you get stopped, keep your hands on the wheel if you're pulled over no back talk. tell them you're a minister, tell them I'm a policeman, be careful. You don't know what will happen. I can still remember that from many years ago. He knew what might happen. And had he been alive today, he could speak sadly of the racial profiling and the continued prejudice and racism directed toward young black men in many areas of America today. We live in a society where the distrust of authority has yielded brokenness, the bent world, bleeding. It has yielded brokenness and division. It is the responsibility of the church to use its prophetic voice to call into healing and newness. Too often, our sin has yielded disdain for and abuse of authority bent, broken, busted, bleeding relationships. But I ask you the question, has the church called the mountain of iniquity to be cast down, to be made low, as our text says? I say that its prophetic voice has too often been mumbling or mute. There's a perspective I want you to see from the film Driving Miss Daisy, starring Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman, a wealthy Jewish widow in pre-civil war, uh, pre-civil rights era South and her chauffeur. This fictional scene is Miss Daisy going to hear Dr. King at a dinner.
1: Yet, in spite of these assets, segregation has placed the whole South socially, educationally, and economically behind the rest of the nation. Yet, there are in the white South millions of people of goodwill, whose voices are yet unheard, whose course is yet unclear, whose courageous acts are yet unseen. to speak out, to offer leadership that is needed. History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and indifference of the good people. Our generation will have to repent not only for the words and acts of the children of darkness, and also for the fears and apathy of the children of life.
0: In Boston, in Lexington, and East Lexington, in Wilmington, and Watertown, are our voices yet unheard? Is our course clear? are our courageous acts yet unseen. The rest of the film portrays the valley of prejudice eroding as employee and employer come to a relational level ground. Miss Daisy in Time came to appreciate the wisdom and, yes, the friendship of Hoke, the chauffeur. And in a touching scene at the end of the film, when Hoke visits her in a care facility, Miss Daisy has a moment of a mar- remarkable mental lucidity, and movingly tells her African-American chauffeur that he's her best friend. And he looks at her and very movingly says, I imagine that's so, Miss Daisy. May it be that we at Grace are not silent children of light amidst the darkness, the ills, and the sins of our day. As we take up the cross in our neighborhoods, in our generation, in our schools, in our workplaces, in every place we have influence, may we take the time to hear and bear the wounds of those still impacted by the heavy hand of racial indifference and disenfranchisement. Perhaps as an action step or two, we in our congregations in our neighborhoods might take up the dialogue, have a meal with someone different, make a cross-cultural friendship, engage your neighbor who is of a different color, or racial, or ethnic background next door, or maybe in the seat next to you. And may the light of justice, renewal, and care for our neighbor ring loud for Jesus' sake, with Jesus' blessing on Jesus' world. Indeed, may it be that we shine forth most mightily as the children of light, shining in the darkness, exposing the deeds of division, healing by God's grace the distrust, and be indeed in every place where we have influence, the church of the living God. As Dr. King says, The time is always right to do what is right. My friends, Kathy and I are your most enthusiastic co-laborers and supporters in this gospel effort. As we together hold fast to Christ and the powerful word, as we hear him say in the scriptures, be the church of a living God. This day, in this place, In this hour, will you be that believing community that has the courage and the faith and the love of righteousness to mark a new course for our young people, to throw off forever the cursed shackles of racial prejudice and dream a renewed world that can be. A Massachusetts that will be full of justly united, multi-ethnic, multi-racial communities who are one people in our renewed humanity in Jesus Christ. Will you be so bold to dream with me, no longer bent over by our prejudices, by our racism? Will you be so bold? The question is not one of political correctness, but the question is, and always has been, who is on the Lord's side? Who wants this with me? I wish somebody would talk to me, because if you don't, I'll keep saying it over and over. (laughs) I want to make sure it's clear. And I'll say it over and over until I'm sure that it's clear. I have spent my best energy in this reconciliation of 30 years of private ministry, public ministry, conversations over and over with the hope that God would do great things in the communities in which we live, that he is committed to that, that the church is committed to that. Who will dream with me that God's will shall prevail and that we will put the horror of our national experience where it belongs? And friends, people of God, where does it belong? It belongs in hell, where it came from, And when Satan tempts you to think those thoughts and to commit those actions and comes to you with that stealthy voice, you know what you should tell him? Go to hell. And if perhaps that's too tight for your sensibilities, just tell him to go home then, if that (laughs) makes you feel better. I know who can put him permanently in that place that shall be His eternal home. I know who that is. The Reformation hymn of Martin Luther speaks of that when he says, You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord sabe of his name. From age to age he's the same, and he must win the battle. He must win the battle. Indeed, we may say with prophetic foretelling, he shall win the battle. And that's the Jesus that I know. And I would long for each one of you who hears my poor pitiful voice to know him as well and to rejoice that he knows us. It is the greatest joy, not just that I know Jesus, but that he knows me. And he knows you. And he knows our bent and our broken and our busted and our bleeding relationships. But he says, even knowing that, I love you. And I love you with an everlasting love. And I love you with a saving love. And I love you with a sanctifying love. And I love you with a love that will find you where you are on the last great day and lift you up again and give you a new body. I know you that well. That is the Jesus it calls upon us to make him known as well. Our text says, all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and this is echoed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. This vision for New England was echoed yet again by John Winthrop. In 1630, as he sailed here on the Arabella and he dreamed about what it might be like as he voiced his hope that the Puritan colony might live with a mighty covenant-keeping fervor and be a city on a hill. And he said, all eyes are on us. Grace Chapel, people of God, all eyes are on us as well. How shall we respond to the pressing needs of this day? How shall we be the church of the living God? As God straightens the bent world and levels the valleys of distrust and fear and all wickedness, may indeed freedom ring throughout the land as we live and serve the one who is described with all majesty as holy, holy, holy. And may it be that it is seen. And as we see it, may we be changed. May we be made new in our affections and our relations. Jesus Christ came to the world not to make us good people, not socially acceptable people, not better people. He came into the world and died to make us new people, with a new perspective, looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. I wish somebody would help me preach this sermon. A new heavens and a new earth, and that's what we long for, where righteousness reigns and the full feathered power and majesty, glory and justice of Jesus shall be seen in every aspect of the world. As the old hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom shall be seen from shore to shore. That's what we long for as the people of God. That's what we want for our children's inheritance. That's what we want Boston and Wilmington and East Lexington and Watertown to be, a place where the goodness and the mercy of Jesus is seen and embraced by everyone. And it will cost us something. It has never been the place of the people of God, to uphold the mighty standard of the gospel and not suffer for it? The master suffered on his lonely road to Golgotha and Calvary? Shall we not suffer as well? Shall we not expect that our neighbor will not like the witness that we have? Well, that shall happen. Let me leave you with these encouraging words in the last part of Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Oh, let goods and kindred go. This mortal mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Christ's kingdom lasts forever and ever, world without end, amen. Let us pray. O oh God, we confess that apart from the gospel, we are forever bent and broken. But in Christ, we are straightened. We are put back together. And we are blessed. We are blessed that you know us and that we know you and mighty Christ, that we have the privilege and the power of the Holy Ghost to make you known. All blessing and dominion and power, glory forever and ever are yours, triune God. Enable us, equip us, that your will will be done and indeed All flesh shall see it together. Amen.